I want to talk to you this morning about baseball. Um, Almost every play in baseball begins the exact same way. It begins with a big, strong man throwing a tiny ball as hard as he can toward another big, strong man who is standing with a bat. And if all goes to plan, that second big, strong man swings the bat as hard as he can in order to hit it as far or as violently as he can in order to try to get on base. That is what happens on virtually every play in baseball, but not quite every play. Sometimes, instead of the big, strong man with the bat answering the big, strong throw with power, he answers it in a different way. Instead of swinging the bat as hard and as violently as he can, instead, he turns his hips, squares up, and does something else. He absorbs the impact of the pitch. He, he sees the violence coming toward him and he uses gentleness and care and subtlety to absorb that power and, and try to drop that ball down the third baseline in a very particular spot. What he does is he uses tenderness to match that speed, that power, that velocity. And tenderness is exactly the idea that we want to focus on today. As Mike was saying, we're in week two of this series of Christmas comforts, and I'm glad to be with you and be able to talk about this with you. Um, last week, Mike shared about the sympathetic Savior, which is a, a, a beautiful thing, um, sympathizing around your feelings of vulnerability and pain. And so today we're looking at the, the tender Savior. So with that, um, let's look at our, our big idea for today, our bottom line, uh, which is this. Because of his great tenderness for you, Jesus chose to come and live a life of sacrifice. Because of his great tenderness for you, Jesus chose to come and live a life of sacrifice. So if we're going to talk about tenderness, let's make sure we understand exactly what we're talking about when we talk about tenderness. Now, just to say, I thought the best example of this would be to have steak for everybody this morning, but Mike said it wasn't in the budget, so we're going to have to just go with some words. So I'm sorry, because that would have both tasted and smelled delicious. So what is tenderness? Uh, Tenderness is gentleness and kindness. It's a feeling of deep affection and devotion. And it's even sensitivity to pain, right? The idea of like uh, your doctor saying, oh, do you have some tenderness in your abdomen, right? Sensitivity to pain. And, and uh, all of these things are obviously, you know, they're accurate. Um, this is a dictionary definition more or less. But what I think um, all of these definitions lack is a little bit of the connotation of the word tenderness, Just like how um, we only use the word spry when we're talking about somebody who's a little old. Nobody really says a spry (laughs) three-year-old, right? In a similar way, tenderness needs to be considered more fully. I think we don't use tenderness unless what we're talking about is an expression of love that is in some way difficult or challenging. Some examples, right? We talk about how Um, a a husband is caring for his dying wife with tenderness. We talk about how a nurse cares for wounds of her patient with tenderness. Implied in tenderness 
is kindness and gentleness, yet, yes, but despite pain or difficulty or challenge. This is what tenderness is because without sacrifice, love can't exist. Without sacrifice, there is no love. No act of love is without sacrifice. You're either giving time, energy, money, something to express that love. And in this case, what you're doing is overcome, overcoming difficulty. That's what tenderness looks like. So we're going to camp in for a little while here this morning, Hosea chapter 11. So you can turn there now if you uh, brought your Bible or digital device that has that. Hosea chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And what I want you to be watching for as we read this together is this, uh, just kind of this, this big idea that, that God demonstrates a character of tenderness. God demonstrates his character of tenderness, meaning that it is fully a part of who he is no matter what. So let's look at, look at this together. It'll be up on the screen here for those who want to read along that way. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. So let's take this kind of one at a time. Let's, let's uh, start back here in, in verse one. And, and I hope you can see the tenderness baked right into this, this beautiful language. It begins with this idea of a child and my son, these metaphors that are familial, right? And this close connection between God and his people. But beyond familial, they're also uh, metaphors that imply belonging and identity, and that's part of what God wants us to understand. These are his children. He loves them because they are his. And there's a sense of connection and love and belongingness in this. But this idea of being called out of Egypt reveals to us the idea of, of tenderness requiring love that goes on despite pain. You remember this story, right? You remember the story of, of Israel being called out of Egypt and all that happened there, right? The, the miraculous plagues that led to Pharaoh finally letting them go, the ransacking of the Egyptians, the parting of the Red Sea. Here, all these miraculous things are happening. But as soon as Israel gets into the desert, it doesn't start going so well. See, for God as a father... This is a painful memory. He saved his people from enslavement. He, he pulled them out of Egypt. And how they thanked him was by complaining and grumbling almost the entire time. They're not thankful or grateful for their newfound freedom. In fact, they can't stop finding things to 
complain about. They, they complain about there only being manna to eat. They complain about the heat of the desert. They complain about there being no water. And, and, and God hears all of this. He hears the grumbling and complaining. And at, at one point, he even calls them out on it. In Numbers chapter 11, he says, Look, I overheard you. I heard what you said. I heard that you were like, Oh, for it was better for us in Egypt. And he's thinking... That, that hurts. As, as Father God, that, that hurts. Pulling them out of Egypt is this hurtful memory. And yet, and yet they're still his children and he still loves them. It reminds me of um, one of my kids' favorite uh, books from when they were little. Um, is a story called Olivia. Maybe some of you have read it. It's a, it's a pig. Olivia's a pig, and, and she's like a toddler, basically. And, and in the original story, uh, mom has had this long, exhausting day with Olivia, and Olivia's kind of hard to handle. And, uh, and at the end of the day, mom's reading her books and all these things, and they're laying in bed, and mom says, Olivia, you really wear me out, but I love you anyway. And Olivia says, I love you anyway, too. And I love that moment and I love that point. And I so thought of that when I read this, that, that here's God saying, oh, Israel, you wear me out, but I love you anyway. And Israel's like, ah, I love you anyway too, right? Just, just stick it to him just a little bit. So in verse one, what we see is, is a complaining child. And we've all been around a complaining child. It's too hot. I'm hungry. Literally what Israel was doing in the desert. But verse 2 reminds us that it went even further than that. It got more egregious than that. In verse 2, it says, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. How? How does this happen? The people who literally saw the Red Sea going, what? were like, eh, I don't believe in that. I'm going to start worshiping false gods. I'm going to start looking at this statue that's lifeless and nothing and calling it a god. How? I mean, sometimes I'm like, how? And then other times I'm like, oh, well, I forget all the time too, right? This isn't just a complaining child. This isn't just um, grumbling. This is another level. This is an outright rejection of who God is. It's an outright rejection of his power. It's an outright rejection of his fatherly example in their life. But, this still doesn't remove God's love. It doesn't make his love go away. There is still tender love despite the pain. And that's part of it. And so we see this in verse three and we see it in such this beautiful, rich way. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. This is, this is exactly what you think it is. It's this picture of grabbing a toddler who's learning to walk by the hands and, and carefully teaching them what to do, right? This, this beautiful idea of just teaching you the very basics. And what I think we're supposed to draw here is this idea that God as a father is not an absent parent, but a present one. That God did the right things. He was loving and caring and present in the lives of Israel, but Israel forgets. They didn't know that I healed them, the verse says. They forgot about who he was and all the good things he did for them, all the ways in which he was present with them. 
both sort of spiritually, but even physically, right? The cloud during the day to give them shade, the, the fire, pillar of fire at night to keep them warm, all of these ways that he did. And so if I can just speak for a moment um, to those of you specifically who have adult children, my kids are still young enough that they haven't totally broken my heart yet, you know? And some of you aren't in that zone anymore. You, you, you have grown children and there's, there's pain and I just want to acknowledge that that happens and that's real. Maybe you have an, a, an estranged relationship. Maybe you have a strained relationship. Maybe that child has, has rejected you outright or reject, rejected the faith you tried to raise them in. And, and, and there's pain. There's pain in that. And I just want to say to you that are in that zone, keep going. Part of tender love is loving despite the pain. And so the question is, now what? It didn't go the way you planned. It didn't go the way that you hoped. But now what? You can mimic, you have the opportunity to mirror the love that the father has for you. Because let me tell you, as a child, you're no cup of tea either. You know what I'm saying? If that's the way God is towards you, if he loves you anyway, then you're called to do the same. And so I just want to encourage you, no matter where your relationship is, no matter if you feel like it's over, it's not. Love them anyway. Show them kindness and tenderness and care anyway. Just keep loving. Now, verse four is helpful because um, there's a lot of familial language here and that's good and we understand that generally, but verse four um, does something a little bit more. It expands it out because remember I said that God's character was that of tenderness, which means he doesn't only show tenderness toward his children, it's broader than that. And I think verse four helps expand that because I think in verse four, we see God's tenderness toward even animals because it's part of his character. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. Picture uh, pulling a horse or a donkey by a rope, sort of gently guiding them along rather than pulling out a whip and, and cracking it behind them. Those are very different kinds of expression. We see tenderness from God even in that way. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. God is one who removes burdens. Or another understanding of this is that uh, it may be basically a, a, an idiom that means the idea of like intimacy and closeness. And if it's that, it's that too, that, that God wants to be close to you. And then this, this last idea, I bent down to them and fed them. And this is exactly how God feels about you. The way that God feels about you is the same way. And so he, he takes a similar approach with us. He invites us rather than drives us. God is a gentleman. He invites you into his family. He doesn't demand you be a part of it. Um, he's a remover of burdens, he feeds us both literally and, and metaphorically, emotionally, spiritually, both ways. I mean, how often do you actually pause and think about the food that comes across your table as a literal gift from God, that he is the one who provided it for you? Now, in most cases, it's not like you went out and were a hunter-gatherer and got it. You just went to hy But still... God gave you the means, the, the money, the whatever to 
actually have that food be provided in another day you be sustained. God loves you in these ways and he expresses his tenderness to you in this way because tenderness is his character. He can't behave any other way. What he has for you is tender love. So with that, let's, let's go back to our bottom line for today, this idea that because of his great tenderness for you, Jesus chose to come and live a life of sacrifice. And so in this Christmas season, it's easy maybe to make the connection and remember what God's tenderness looks like in reality. And the reality is that God demonstrates his tenderness through Jesus. That's the way his tenderness is very explicitly expressed. It's through Jesus. So let's go back to um, Hosea 11, 1. If you remember, there was this phrase of, out of Egypt, I called my son. And that's really interesting because uh, Hosea is doing, I think, more than one thing there. In, In real time, he's reflecting on the exodus, He's remembering the miraculous way that, that the people of Israel were removed from, from Pharaoh's enslavement. But we also know that all of Scripture holds whispers about the Chosen One, about the Messiah, about Jesus. And so I think what's going on here is not only Hosea reflecting back, that's true, but also that he's looking forward. Because there's something going on that's pointing us to the ultimate rescue and the ultimate rescuer. And we see that really directly in this phrase of calling out of Egypt, my son. And we see it because Matthew 2 tells us. So Matthew 2 uh, says this. Now, when they had departed, behold, when uh, the they here is the wise men, when the wise men leave, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, Jesus, Mary, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then it goes on, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is incredible, right? This is a beautiful thing. And and one of the things that's amazing about it is, right, one of the reasons we have confidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be is all these prophecies. And, and, And one of the things that, one of my sort of favorite examples of this is how we're told that, you know, Jesus was gonna be, or the Messiah was gonna be born in Bethlehem, but then we have this thing that's just gonna call him out of Egypt. How would that ever happen? They're not in the same place, but through God's providence, he made both happen born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt. Amazing, beautiful, wonderful. But here's what I don't want you to miss about this idea is that the coming of Jesus was to emphasize and demonstrate God's tenderness by his presence. And we know this in our hearts anyway, don't we? Because when someone really cares about you, they find a way to be there. Where they find a way to be present. Our presence is one of the greatest ways we can show and express our love. See, 
it's right to say, obviously, biblically, it's right to say that God sent his son. There's several passages that say that. But it's also right, and maybe in some ways more complete, to say God sent himself. He loved you enough that in his triune nature, he wanted to make sure you knew that you were loved. And so he showed up. Because while you can speak tender words over the phone or, or, or in a letter, tenderness cannot be fully expressed unless it's done in person. Tenderness requires presence. And that's one of the ways you know how fully God loves you is that he chose to be present and walk among us as humanity. He loved humanity enough that he wanted to be present. And in fact, that leads us to our next point, which is this, that God has a tenderness for you. Not just for the world, not just generally, though those things are true too. God, though, has a tenderness for you. The way God feels about Israel, the way God feels about Jesus, is the way God feels about you. And he proved it. He proved it by choosing to be present. One of the things that happened with the coming of Jesus was there was this change, right? It had always been there, but people began to understand it differently. That it wasn't just Israel that was God's special family, that instead there was another way of getting into God's family. It wasn't about bloodlines anymore. It was about adoption. It was a God saying, I choose you. Now, I am somebody who has both biological children and adopted children in my family. And so let me tell you with some credibility that biological children sometimes are born on purpose and sometimes they're not. But no one ever in the history of all time has adopted by accident. Adoption is a choice and it's a long, expensive, paperwork-filled choice. But it's a choice and nobody stumbles into an adoption. Two and a half years ago, um, we adopted uh, two of our kiddos um, from Costa Rica. On the, your far left there, that's my daughter, Claudia, who was 17 at the time. And uh, Jefferson, my son, was five at the time. And um, there's some really interesting things about going through the adoption process with them. One of them was that uh, we knew about them and knew them for a really long time before they ever heard our names uttered. And that's exactly how God was with each and every one of us, right? He loved us first, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knew about you first and loved you first. But another interesting piece was that um, we actually walked into an orphanage, looked at these two, and we said, I choose you, but there were 80 other kids that we didn't choose. And I was really struck by this idea that... Um, we weren't able to do for everyone what we were able to do for some. But what we knew, what my wife and I knew, was that their lives were going to be much better being in a family than not being in one. And God has that same feeling about you. He wants you to be in his family, and so he offers it to you. He says, I choose you. 
But let me tell you something that's interesting about adopting older kids. Um, babies don't get to do this uh, in the same way, but my kids on this day, when this was the official day that we, we uh, legally that became their parents at the courthouse, they were each, before we were official, ushered into a room and they were asked, do you want to be adopted by this family? They got to choose. And sometimes kids say no. They said yes. We were happy about that. Uh, but sometimes kids say no. And friends, you have that choice too. God is saying, I choose you. I want you in my family. And you get to choose whether or not you want to be a part of it. But realize when he says, I choose you, he does it with eyes wide open. He has seen every failure you've ever made. He knows even better than you do how messed up, screwed up, and deranged you are. And he loves you anyway. And that's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. But see, remember, tenderness can only be fully expressed in person. And um, both with my biological and my adoptive kids, because you love them before you ever meet them, right? I mean, whether they're, they're growing in mom's tummy or, or their pictures on a screen, we loved our kids, prayed for our kids for months, for months first, but we ached to meet them. We ached to meet them. We just wanted to be with them because we couldn't express our love fully unless we were in person. Jesus loved you enough to arrive and be present in your life. So because of his great tenderness for you, Jesus chose to come and live a, sac a life of sacrifice. And therefore, if you are a follower of Jesus, he asks you to do the same. And so with that, I want to return to our opening picture here. Um, the most common form of a bunt is not used for the batter to get on base. It's actually something else. It, what usually happens when a bunt occurs is not the hope that I get on base, but that one of my teammates can advance. And does anybody know what that's called? It's called a what kind of bunt? Sacrifice bunt. In a sacrifice bunt, what you're doing is you're using your subtlety. You're absorbing the violence. You're taking on the hard thing in order for somebody else to benefit. That's what you're doing. The most effective use of a bunt is to, is to benefit somebody else. And if you think back on your own life, you can probably think back fondly on people in your life who sacrificed for you, who gave time, energy, money for you so that you could move along the base paths. But I think, I think our world um, is letting this happen less and less. I think our society is partially crumbling in some ways because we don't want to sacrifice for each other. And frankly, Major League Baseball um, is indicative maybe of our culture. Since 1945, the number of sacrifice bunts per at-bat has been dropping with a particular drop-off around 2008. And one of the biggest reasons for that is more people are swinging for the fences. More people want the glory and, and the beauty of a home run. They want to be the hero rather than wanting to help their, their teammates and their partners move a little bit farther along. Sadly, I, I think this maybe reflects where we are as a world today too, that we are less and less 
willing to sacrifice for the benefit of others. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to do that. You're called to sacrifice for others. You're called to express love even when, maybe especially when it's difficult and hard. You need to show tenderness in this way. And for those of you who are built this way a little bit, this is becoming more and more rebellious and countercultural to live this way. So be a rebel and live with sacrifice a little bit.